Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This is going to be a bonus episode, sort of filling in the space between Season 7, which has just ended, and Season 8, which will begin eventually, inshallah. Essentially, the Bosnia series, uh, the Bosnia series kind of wore me out, and I'm just not ready to sit down and spend four months prepping for the next season. That's roughly the time it takes for me to get a new season together. It takes about four months of prep to prepare a four-month season. And I just need some time to rest, even though I've been resting for the past four months as it is, because we wrapped the uh, Bosnia series up back in November. So I guess now that it's March, you could say I've been um, kind of resting for the past four months, but still, I'm not ready to go back and just uh, sit down for four months and get season eight together, which, by the way, will be on the Mughal empires of the Indian subcontinent. We will get to them, inshallah, before the end of the year. Just not right now. It's going to take some time and chill out for for a while. So in the meantime, I have several ideas for bonus episodes. These bonus episodes will be random topics that I've discovered during my researching the various topics I'm working on. I'm working on the Umayyad Khilafat for those who are subscribed to the Islamic History exclusive podcast. Also have many other things I'm working on. Long story short, I have quite a few ideas to fill up this uh, period of time. So I hope to keep these bonus episodes coming out. They're going to be on random topics. I'm not going to uh, divulge what they're going to be on just yet, but I think you'll find them interesting. For this first two, these first two episodes, first two bonus episodes, they're going to be on the interaction between the Vikings and the Muslims. So this particular episode that we're doing today is based on a research paper called The Vikings in Arabic Sources. It was written by Amin Tibi in the summer 1996 Journal of Islamic Studies, published by the Islamic Research Institute based in Islamabad, Pakistan. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Vikings and Muslims, and I'll let you know what the next episode will, go, will be about, inshallah, before the end of this episode, because the next episode is connected to this one. But one thing at a time. So let's get started. Let's begin with the question, what is a Viking? Well, the Vikings were Norsemen, and Norsemen were the ancestors of modern Scandinavians. The Scandinavians were people who populated the lands of northern Europe, particularly Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Denmark. Vikings, however, were seafaring Norsemen who raided coastal settlements. They also pillaged. That's what they're kind of known for. But they also traded and they settled in other lands. And we will talk about some of that today and perhaps even more, inshallah, in the next episode. So if you want to understand a basic, if you want to get a basic understanding of the Vikings, all Vikings were Norsemen, but not all Norsemen were Vikings. The Vikings were only those seafaring Norsemen who went around doing the raiding and the pillaging and the trading. The Viking Age lasted from about 800 CE to the 1060 CE. And to put that into a sort of perspective for you, the beginning of of the Crusades, or the first Crusade occurred in the late ten nine in the late ten nineties. Particularly, the Crusaders conquered Jerusalem in ten ninety nine CE, roughly forty years after the end of the Viking Age. All right, so now that we have a 
basic understanding of who the Vikings were, let's discuss how the Vikings sometimes met Muslims. As I mentioned, even though Vikings are generally known for violence, they're known for pillaging and raiding and things like that, the Vikings were also traders and merchants. They traded and raided all along the European, Mediterranean, and Middle Eastern coasts. In addition to trading and raiding along the coasts, they also sometimes went up into the rivers along these coasts and attacked settlements and cities down the riverside. In fact, the Vikings established a settlement in North America centuries before Christopher Columbus crossed over the Atlantic. The Vikings also went deep into Russia near the Caspian and the Black Seas, and being that close, once you get close to the Caspian and the Black Sea specifically, the Black Sea leads to the Bosporus Strait, which is right there by Anatolia, and once you get to Anatolia, you're pretty much in the Middle East. And I know sometimes people don't consider Anatolia part of the Middle East, but it's right there, just north of the Middle East. So once you get to Anatolia, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump before the Vikings Vikings will wind up in the Middle East. And so, yes, there were some Vikings who even made it all the way to Baghdad, not to raid, not to pillage, but to conduct trade. And the Muslims of Baghdad at this time, when they met these Vikings, they called them Rus. Rus is connected to the modern term for Russia. As I mentioned, these Vikings settled near the Black Sea, which is in modern-day Russia. A portion of it is in modern-day Russia. And when they came to the Muslim lands, they called them Rus in connection to Russia. Now, there were also some Muslim merchants who traveled, and in their travels, they came across Viking-controlled parts of Europe, and they conducted trade with the Vikings as well in the Viking lands. It wasn't just the Vikings coming to the Muslim lands. The Muslims also went to the Viking lands to conduct trade. Both parties, both sides, had things that the other one wanted. The Vikings, in particular, really desired the Abbasid dirham, those silver Abbasid dirhams, the silver money from the Abbasids. The Vikings really wanted that, and that's what really attracted so many Viking merchants to the Muslim world. The Vikings would trade their goods, usually furs, to the Muslims living under the Abbasid Khilafat. They would receive silver dirhams in return. The Vikings would take those silver dirhams back to their lands, back to their homes, and use that to expand their territory, to expand their settlements, and to buy more boats and arms to do more raiding and trading. And so that's how the system went. As I mentioned, the Muslims in Baghdad during the Abbasid era generally called the Vikings Rus. In other parts of the Muslim world, the Vikings were called Majus, particularly in Andalusia. Now, Majus is the Arabic word for Magian, and Magian was another name for Zoroastrian, and Zoroastrians were fire worshippers. The Vikings often burned their dead on floating ships, and when the Muslims of, Andal- of Andalusia saw them doing this, they took this for worship. Now, this term, uh, calling the Vikings Majus, is more common in Islamic Spain and Andalusia than it was in places like Baghdad. 
And that's because, well, part of it is connected to the fact that the Muslims in Andalusia in Islamic Spain, they saw the Vikings as more negative. They saw the Vikings in more of a negative light. That's because the Vikings raided Spain several times, and we're going to talk about some of those events today, inshallah. So the Muslims of Andalusia, in addition to calling the Vikings Majus, they also called them Ardamaniun. And Ardamaniun comes from the Latin word for Norsemen, Normani. Normani to Ardamaniun, and that's where we get it from. So those are the two terms that the Muslims of Andalusia used for the Vikings, Ardamaniun and Majus. Ardamaniun is probably the more correct one. Majus was a misunderstanding by the Muslims of that time regarding the worship and religion of the Vikings. Now, in many of the texts that Arabs, the Arabs wrote about the Vikings, they often describe them as being blonde with red faces, which kind of fits in with our image of Vikings. And when they did interact on peaceful terms, when the Muslims and Vikings did interact on peaceful terms, the Vikings often brought furs and skins from their lands, generally these colder areas where they had animals like beavers and foxes and stuff like that, that had thick, thick fur and thick skin and things like that. These are things that were highly desired by the Arabs of Baghdad. These furs were, very, were highly valued in the Muslim lands because they could use these fur to make caps and other clothing. And so that's how the trade went between the Vikings and the Arabs, particularly those in, in Baghdad. But the Vikings also traded slaves. The Vikings, as we mentioned, did a lot of pillaging and raiding. And when they pillaged and raided, they sometimes brought some slaves along with them. And they would often bring these slaves, almost certainly of European descent, they will bring these slaves to the Muslim lands and trade them there as well. Okay, so now we have a basic understanding of the Muslim-Viking interactions. Let's talk about some of the documentation that Muslims have made about the Vikings. One amazing thing about these Muslim Arabic reports on the Vikings is that they are the earliest and the best available source on early Viking history. Yes, Vikings had their own uh, legends and lore and mythology, and those things have, have uh, stayed around and, and managed to live through time. But many of, these are, many of these things are based on mythology, and so they're, they're not really good from a historical perspective. Maybe from an anthropological perspective or literature perspective, but not from a historical perspective. There are also Christian reports about the Vikings, but... Most of these reports were written by people who were victims of the Viking raids. And so these reports from these Christians who are usually monks and things like that are usually very biased against the Vikings and don't give an, uh, an objective, clear-minded, unbiased explanation and description of who the Vikings were. There was some bias in the Muslim writing as well, but the Muslim writings were often much more objective and just stating the facts. But naturally, every Every group, including Muslims, would think that their society and their culture was greater than others. And no doubt the Muslims at this time were the same way. But still, even though that, that bias, that minimal bias was still there, the Muslim writings are still much more objective and much more useful to modern historians. Most of the earliest writing by Muslims about the Vikings came during the Abbasid Khilafat. 
And the one that we are going to talk about today, inshallah, was made by Yahya ibn Ghazal from Andalusia. This writing came about, and we'll get into more detail soon, inshallah, came about because in 844 CE, a group of Vikings began raiding the Iberian coast, the, the coast of Spain, and also what is now Portugal as well. Now, these Vikings who were raiding the Iberian coast in the mid-800s, these Vikings may have originated from Denmark or they may have originated from Ireland. We're not, we're not exactly sure. And I will discuss this in more detail soon, inshallah. We'll get more into these Vikings in just a moment. But nonetheless, around 844 CE, a group of Vikings began raiding the Iberian coast. One of the first place they, places they attacked in Iberia was Lisbon, the modern capital of Portugal. And then from there, they entered the estuary or the delta or the entrance of the Guadalquivir River in Spain. The Vikings sailed up the river and then attacked and occupied the city of Seville for about six weeks. Eventually, Abdurrahman II, the emir of Andalusia, got his forces together and drove the Vikings out. Later on, however, after driving the Vikings out of Andalusia and out of Seville, the Vikings who had raided sent a diplomatic mission asking for peace from the Muslims of Andalusia. Abdurrahman II, the emir of Andalusia, he received the diplomatic mission and he decided to respond in kind and he sent a poet named Yahya ibn Ghazal and an astronomer named Yahya ibn Habib to travel to the Viking lands, meet with them, meet with their leaders, and establish diplomatic relations. We will discuss some of the reasonings behind Abdurrahman II's uh, sending this mission to the Vikings later on, inshallah, before we wrap up this episode. So that's one of the major writings done by Muslims, and we're going to get more in-depth about Yahya ibn Ghazal's journey to the Viking lands in a moment. That's what the bulk of this episode is going to be about, inshallah. But there were other writings by other Muslims. There was a Persian explorer and geographer named Ahmed ibn Rustah who wrote about Viking settlements in 910 CE. He was a traveler, he was an explorer, and in his travels and explorations, he came across some Viking settlements. He described them as not being villages or not having any villages or open fields. But he also described the Vikings as possessing very good swords and being very excellent fighters. Ahmed ibn Rustah did not really play up the violence that the Vikings are often known for. Instead, he described that their primary interest was wanting to, con to conduct trade with the Muslim lands. That was the main concern of the Vikings that Ahmed ibn Rustah came, came across. And then we also have the most popular account of Muslim-Viking interaction that was written by Ahmed ibn Fadlan. Ahmed ibn Fadlan wrote his manuscript or his Risala around 921 CE, so maybe about 11 years or so after Ahmed ibn Rusta visited the Vikings. And if you... You might be familiar with this because it, it, there's some popular culture that stems from Ibn Fadlan's Risala. His Risala was the inspiration behind a book called Eaters of the Dead, written by Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton is the same guy who wrote 
the popular novel that was a basis for Jurassic Park. He basically wrote the novel called Jurassic Park that was eventually turned into the movie. Well, Michael Crichton's book, Eaters of the Dead, became a movie starring Antonio Banderas called The 13th Warrior. Now, I've, I saw both. I, I've, I saw the movie The 13th Warrior, and I read the book Eaters of the Dead many years ago, like 20 years ago. They came out in the early 2000s, late 1990s, a long time ago. Much of the book and the movie is make-believe. You can read it if you want to be entertained. You can watch the movie if you want some entertainment. Don't do it for a historical perspective. Most of it is make-believe. It is only loosely based on the true Risala written by Ibn Fadlan. Most of the movie and the book is, is make-believe. Nothing to do with Ibn Fadlan's Risala. Inshallah, we will discuss Ibn Fadlan's journey and his Risala in more detail in the next episode. Inshallah, that's my intention. So now we know some of the major documentation written by Muslims. We have the one by Ibn Ghazal. We have the one by Ahmed Ibn Rustah. We have the one by Ahmed Ibn Fadlan. Now let's get, go into detail regarding the main one that I wanted to talk about today. Ibn Ghazal's mission to the Viking lands. Now here's the sticky part. The original report of Ibn Ghazal no longer exists. It, we no longer have that. The original report is just not there. Instead, we have to rely on later writings that discuss his visit. We don't have the actual report from Ibn Ghazal, no copies of it, no traditions handed down. All we have are writings written many years later that discuss what Ibn Ghazal saw and what he experienced in the Viking lands. The earliest written report we have about Ibn Ghazal's report was made by a scholar named Ibn Dihya al-Kalbi, who died in 1235 CE. Ibn Ghazal visited the Vikings in 845 CE. That's almost 400 years earlier than Ibn Dihya's writing about Ibn Ghazal's visit. In fact, Ibn Dihya didn't even read or see Ibn Ghazal's writings or his report about his visit to the Vikings. Instead, he based his work on the writings of a man who knew Ibn Ghazal. It was a friend of Ibn Ghazal's who, who wrote down what he heard from Ibn Ghazal, and Ibn, Ibn Dihya wrote down what that friend wrote. So, Ibn Dihya. Ibn Dihya's work on Ibn Ghazal's visit to the Viking court, I hope you're following all these Ibn's that I'm talking about, it is third-hand report. Let's be honest with that. It is a third-hand report, but nonetheless, even though it is third-hand knowledge written by a guy who read something else by a guy who knew the guy who really did the travels, even though it is a third-hand report, much of it turned out to actually match up with modern archaeological and anthropological studies. So despite it being a little bit um, inexact or indirect, a lot of it still matches up with what we know now about Vikings. So then, now we got to go back to whether these Vikings that raided Andalusia, we have to go back to the question of whether they were from Denmark or Ireland. So to catch you up, so in case you missed, missed what, we talking, what we were talking about, in 844 CE, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, a group of Vikings came raiding down the Iberian coast. 
They went up the river, attacked and occupied Seville. Eventually, the Amir of um, of Andalusia, Abdurrahman II, he takes them out. The Vikings sent a mission, a diplomatic mission, to establish peace and good relations with the Muslims of Al-Andalusia. And with that, Abdurrahman II sent Ibn Ghazal and another uh, scholar, another astrologer named Yahya Ibn Habib, sent them both to meet with the Vikings and establish relations with them as well. So that's where we get Ibn Ghazal's report, and that's what we're talking about now. And as I mentioned earlier, we, weren't, we aren't quite sure if these Vikings came from either Denmark or Ireland. At the time, the Vikings were raiding the Spanish coast, the Iberian coast. There were two locations that were known to be major Viking strongholds. There was Denmark, ruled by King Horik I, and then in Ireland, there was a Viking warlord named Turgesius, who ruled over a portion of central, of central Ireland, not the entire island of Ireland, just a portion of central Ireland. So this is where it is most likely one of these two places, either Denmark or Ireland, that these Vikings came from. Ibn Ghazal, in his report, he described the Viking homeland as a large island surrounded by many smaller islands. Now, to me, that definitely sounds like Ireland. Ireland is an island. Denmark is a peninsula, not an island. Denmark does have many smaller islands off of its eastern shore, but Ireland has islands surrounding almost the entire island. So, Allah knows best, of course, but to me, it kind of matches up more with Ireland than Denmark. Ibn Ghazal also described the Vikings as heathens who had recently accepted Christianity. So these were probably mushrikun, pagans, people who, who uh, worshipped multiple gods, polytheists, who had recently accepted Christianity, but Christianity has not, had not really yet be, become a part of their culture. However, the lands that these Vikings had captured and occupied, whether it was Ireland or Denmark, in both of these lands, Christianity was well established already. There were churches there when the Vikings arrived, especially in Ireland. And we'll talk about that soon. In Denmark, it's a little bit different because that's kind of where the Vikings originated from. But still, Christianity was well established in both of these places by the time the Vikings arrived. Ibn Ghazal did report, however, that there were some people in the outer islands who still followed their pre-Christian faiths. Whatever they followed before Christianity came along, there are still some people in these remote islands, most likely surrounding Ireland, that still follow their faiths. Ibn Ghazal described them as fire worshippers, but this is perhaps most likely related to the misunderstanding that we, dis that we discussed earlier, where some of the Muslims thought that the Vikings were uh, Zoroastrians. Ibn Ghazal also said that the heathen Vikings, the Vikings that had not yet accepted Christianity, those in those outer islands, many of them still practiced incest and other abominations. And here's the curious thing. Neither one of these Viking rulers that we mentioned, whether it was Horik I in Denmark or Turgesius in Ireland, not, neither one of them were Christian yet. Both of them still practice their pre-Christian religions. This is most likely, I don't know all the details of the Norse religion, but I know 
that it includes Thor and Odin. Now, I can't get into the details of the old Norse religion. Quite frankly, I haven't really studied it myself. But I do know that its impact is still being felt even today. You'll understand what I mean in just a moment. Many of the English days, I think all the English days, are named after some of these deities that were worshipped in the old Norse religion. Monday comes from the word for moon. Tuesday comes from a deity named Tui. Wednesday comes from the word Woden, which is another pronunciation of the deity known as Odin. Thursday obviously comes from Thor. I think it's pretty, pretty easy to recognize. Friday comes from a deity named Frigg, I believe. And then you have Saturday, which is named after the, the planet Saturn. And then, of course, you have Sunday, which is, of course, named after the sun. Even more curious, even more interesting, these deities that the old Norse, that the ancient Norsemen worshipped, they are actually based on Roman and Greek deities. If we take the Spanish words for the same days of the week, let's start with Monday. So let's start with Monday. Spanish word for Monday is lunes. And just like the Norse word for the day, or just like our word for that same day, it derives from the word for moon, lunar, moon. I think you get the connection. Next, we have Tuesday. The Spanish word for Tuesday is martes. I know my pronunciation may not be the best in the world. Sorry, Spanish is not my first language. Anyway, you have martes in Spanish, and that comes from the Roman deity Mars, I believe the god of war. Wednesday in Spanish is Miracoles, which comes from the Roman deity Mercury. Next, we have Thursday, named after Thor, but in Spanish, Thursday is Jueves, which comes from the Latin deity Jupiter, which is the Roman incarnation of the Greek deity Zeus. And if you know anything about Greek and Roman mythology, you know that Zeus was known for shooting thunderbolts, which is very similar to what Thor is supposedly known for. Finally, we have Friday, which in Spanish is Viernes and is named after the Roman goddess Venus. Things finally get different when we get to the weekend. Saturday is named Sabado in Spanish, which actually is not related to any Roman or Greek deity that I'm aware of. It actually comes from the word Sabbath, which is a Judeo-Christian thing. And Sabbath is most certainly from the Hebrew word for the number seven. It is very similar to the Arabic word for seven, Sabah. So I haven't checked it, but I think I can probably come to that same understanding that the Sabbath or the seventh day, which is Saturday, is named after the Hebrew word for seven. And then finally, you get the word Sunday in Spanish, that is Domingo. And that is also a religious connotation that comes from the Latin word um, day of the Lord. That has nothing to do with Hebrew or Islamic things. That's a completely Christian thing right there. So I just want to show you how the days of the weeks are connected to this old Norse religion that we are using and how that is also connected to the old ancient Roman mythology. I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent and I'm going to do that often. So I'll try to keep these tangents minimal. But when I get a bug in my ear, I got to talk about it.
Something else I want to mention, don't believe that Muslims are completely free of this uh, connection with other parts of the world. Now, of course, in, the, in Arabic, the days of the week are named after numbers, except for Friday, which is Yamul Jumu'ah, which means the day of gathering. So that's different. I'm not talking about the days of the week, but even the Arabic alphabet. In fact, most of the alphabets in the old world, not Asia, not China and um, Japan and places like that, but the alphabet of, well, the Arabic alphabet, the Greek alphabet, the the Latin alphabet, which is the one we use in English, the Cyrillic alphabet, all of these alphabets have a very odd connection. Almost all of them begin with the same two sounds, a, ba, whether it's English, a, b, or Greek, alpha, beta, or Arabic, alif, ba, they all begin with a, ba. And they're all, even more curious, they all have the same four letters right in the middle of them. English has K-L-M-N. In Greek, it is Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Nu. And in Arabic, you have Kaf, Lam, Mim, Nun. The exact same order. I'm not by any means a linguist or anything. Maybe all of this stems from the ancient Egyptian hieroglyph hieroglyphics. Allah knows best. But just letting you know that all of these different cultures and languages, they are all connected in some way. And perhaps even in deeper ways than what I mentioned. Okay. Well, tangent is over. <laughs> Back to our story. I'll try not to do this too often, inshallah. But sometimes I just, I just gotta, I just gotta get these things off my mind when they're in there. All right. So Ibn Khazal, he's in Ireland, most likely, or Denmark, but most likely Ireland. He's in Ireland. He's debating with the Vikings. These are friendly debates because the Vikings love hearing about stories and love debates and stuff like that. So he's debating with them. He's sharing stories with them. They're holding these lengthy conversations. He's conversing with the Viking leadership. He even goes about and and uh, has. Uh, fencing matches with them, friendly, uh, friendly uh, sword fights with them, and he he claims to win them all. But the point of the matter is, Ibn Ghazal is striking up a good relationship with the Vikings. He also had several conversations with the Viking king's wife or the queen of the Vikings, wherever he was, which was most likely Ireland. But wherever he was, he also had several several conversations with the queen of the Vikings, whom he labeled or he called nude, N-U-D, nude. Now, while he was having these conversations with the queen, over time, Ibn Ghazal got worried. He was scared that he might offend the Viking king, whom he was a guest of, and so he started to limit his visits and try to put some distance between him and the queen. Well, the Viking queen noticed this and she asked him why did he stop coming as often as he used to. Ibn Ghazal explained that he didn't want to offend his host, the king, and the queen laughed. And she said that the women, the Viking women, don't have such things like this. There's no jealousy in their religion. Now remember, these were not Christians, okay? She said they don't have any jealousy in their religion. She said that women remain with their men by choice and they can leave their husbands whenever they want. This is one of the things where it really matches up with modern scholarship. This description that, that Ibn Ghazal provided of 
the marital relationships in this Viking land that he was in, it is very similar to that of many Scandinavian noble women. And this was confirmed in other sources, some Islamic sources as well. For example, in 965 CE, another Andalusian emissary, this is now almost 100 years, over 100 years after Ibn Ghazal's journey to the Viking lands, another Andalusian emissary named Ibrahim al-Turtushi, he visited the German emperor Otto I. And while there, Ibrahim al-Turtushi, he described the women of southern Denmark in a similar manner. He described them that the women controlled divorce and that the women could divorce whenever they wanted to. Though this was most likely related to noble women, perhaps women of the higher classes of society, almost certainly peasant women did not have that kind of freedom. But still, it is interesting that later scholarship absolutely matches up with Ibn Ghazal, despite the fact, as I mentioned, that Ibn Ghazal's uh, writings we only have through third-person narrative. Now just contrast that with the way things are in European Christian societies regarding marriage, or the way things were in European Christian society, and also even to Islamic society. The Catholic Church, as we know, prohibits divorce. Maybe you didn't know that, but you do now. The Catholic Church prohibits divorce. I think there's some changes to it now, but whatever. The point of the fact is that in most of ancient Catholic Europe, they that people couldn't get divorced at all, men or women. And under Islamic law, divorce is allowed, but it is controlled by men. I'm not going to pull any punches here. Divorce is controlled by men. Women, Muslim women, in order to get divorced, generally have to go through a legal process, the hula. We're not going to talk about fiqh right now. I'm just wanting to show you the contrast between the way the Vikings handled their marriages and the way Muslims and Christians handled their marriages and at that time and even today. This is not a judgment call. There's no comparison here. We know that the system that Allah and His Messenger وسلم, has provided is the best system. I'm just bringing it up here, bringing it up to compare and contrast. All right, moving on. Now, one thing I want to talk about real quick before we get to the next section is this queen that Ibn Ghazal visited so often. Who was this queen? As I mentioned, he called her nude in his writings, but that wasn't the name that I found in my research. Of the two possible Viking rulers, remember that we mentioned that the Viking settlement that Ibn Ghazal visited was either Denmark, ruled by King Horik I, or Ireland, really central Ireland, ruled by a Viking warlord named Turgesius. Let me get that pronunciation correct. Now, in my research, I can only find the name of Turgesius's wife. I couldn't find Horik's wife's name. Turgesius's wife, her name was not Nude, her name was Ota, and she was a fortune teller. Now, these Vikings who controlled this central part of Ireland, this that is the one ruled by the warlord Turgesius and his wife, his queen, Ota, these Vikings were originally from Norway. Turgesius and his Viking forces attacked and occupied North Ireland in 839 CE, and he established his headquarters in an area or region called Lough Ree, which is almost exactly in the middle of of the Irish island, of Ireland itself. His wife, Ota, she went downriver, 
a little bit downriver, and took up residence at a local monastery called Clan MacNoise, and she began to use this monastery to tell fortunes. She was a fortune teller. She was what's called a spay wife, which basically means a female fortune teller. And Ibn Ghazal, he would go visit her at this church in the monastery, and they will hold their conversations there. I just want to give a little, a little bit more clarity and understanding of this queen that Ibn Ghazal was talking to so often. Now let's talk a little bit about the politics behind Ibn Ghazal's visit to the Vikings. Now, of course, we know the story that I mentioned that the Emir of Andalusia, he sent Ibn Ghazal on a diplomatic mission uh, and in, re- in response to the Vikings wanting to establish peace. There's some politics behind all of this, though. The Cordoba Emirate that Abdurrahman II ruled over at this time was at war with a Frankish king named Charles the Bald. Yes, Charles the Bald, who was the grandson or a grandson of the famous King Charlemagne. Charles the Bald, these names are really crazy. I just want to tell you some of these names. Charles the Bald was the father of Louis the Stammerer and Charles the Child and Lothar the Lame, and he was also the uncle of Charles the Fat. I just thought these names are crazy as I was uh, reading over them, but it's not that important. Charles the Bald ruled over a region of the former Carolingian Empire known as West Francia. West Francia would later become the notion that we now know of as France. Anyway, Charles the Bald and his Frankish soldiers captured Barcelona in 801 CE from the Muslims. 801. The Vikings raided Andalusia in 844. This is a good 43 years before the Viking attack on Andalusia. Barcelona would remain in Christian hands pretty much for good after that. Even though the Muslims attacked it and raided it for centuries onwards, they never really fully took control of Barcelona back. Nonetheless, This conquest by Charles the Bald, him capturing Barcelona from the Muslims, led to warfare between the Franks and the Emirate of Cordoba. However, there was lots of internal strife within the Frankish kingdom, and this allowed the Muslims to raid their territory, and the Muslims got deep into France. They got as far north as Narbonne, which is in southern France in 843, just the year before the Viking raid of Seville. And so while the Franks were dealing with the Muslims pushing deep into their territory, they also had to deal with the Vikings who at this point in time were starting their raid on coastal France. They first began attacking the Frankish coastal areas in 820 CE, just a little bit after Charlemagne died. They raided a a settlement called Nantes in western France in 843, which is actually deeper into France on the river Loire. And then they got so far, the Vikings... The Vikings traveled up the river Seine and sacked Paris in 845 CE. The Vikings weren't done. 40 years later, in 885 CE, they came back and sacked Paris again. The Vikings really put Paris through some mess. So it was around this time, the Vikings were really just coming down the the coast of Europe. First they went through France, and then they came to Andalusia and just attacking things. And that's what led to their conflict when they captured Seville for a short period of time and eventually led to Emir Abdurrahman II trying to uh, establish diplomatic relations with them. Emir Abdurrahman II was hoping, and this is the politics behind the whole thing, he was hoping that he could use the Vikings or count on them as an ally against their common enemy, 
the Franks. But as far as I can tell, I don't believe that this ever actually uh, came to pass. I believe they just had a, you know, a few good relations, maybe some exchange of gifts and, and letters and stuff. But I don't believe the Vikings and the Muslims ever allied against the Franks. I could be wrong, but I don't believe it really happened. There's also, of course, in addition to the political motive, there's also an economic motive. Abdurrahman II also most likely wanted to establish trade connections with the Vikings. As we mentioned, the Vikings were just as much merchants and traders as they were warriors. And even in Ibn Ghazal's reports, there is a suggestion that some trading may have already been taking place between the Muslims and the Vikings at this time, the Muslims of Andalusia and the Vikings at this time. That's because Ibn Ghazal had to communicate with the Vikings through a translator. So if he was communicating with the Vikings through a translator, that means that there was most likely a Viking there who spoke Arabic. And so that's uh, why it is highly likely that there was already some economic interchange between the Muslims of Andalusia and the Vikings as well. And that will conclude our discussion of Ibn Ghazal's visit to the Viking court, which could have been in either Denmark or Ireland, but most likely was in Ireland, and Allah knows best. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Before we wrap things up, i got a little bit of housekeeping to do. I must ask you, please try to support the Islamic History Podcast. Easiest way to support this podcast is by joining Islamic History Exclusive. We have almost 70 episodes of bonus material available there. There is the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. There is the conflict between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads. And then we also have one complete season of the Umayyad Khilafat. And we are running towards the end of the second season of the Umayyad Khilafat. That's over 70 episodes of bonus material. You have so much stuff to listen to, inshallah, if you are interested in that. And if you join... Inshallah, that will help keep this podcast going. If you have an Apple device, just open up your Apple Podcast app, look for Islamic History Exclusive, and go ahead and join right there. If you don't have Apple and you said you have Android, you have two options. You can either go through Patreon and go just go to patreon.com slash Islamic History. You can sign up there. Or if you have Spotify, You can also go to Spotify, look for Islamic History Exclusive there as well. And either one of them, I'll be more than grateful for your support. Additionally, I would also ask that you consider subscribing to the free podcast. This is completely free. The free podcast that we have on the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It is called the Prophet Muhammad podcast. It is completely free. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can find it on Spotify or however you want to listen to podcasts. You can find the Prophet Muhammad podcast and listen listen to that. Nothing to join, nothing to do. Just go ahead and sign up and listen to it. It is all feasibility. And last thing before we wrap up, last thing. I also have two YouTube channels based on the Islamic History Podcast. They're still kind of growing, so there's not much there yet, but there's still some stuff there if you're interested. We have a YouTube channel called Islamic History Podcast, which is really just short clips of the podcast put to video. So 
you may have heard it already. If you're already a fan of this podcast, you probably have heard these clips already. It's just that now they are put to video. They just put to video and I hope you find it interesting or inshallah join and doesn't hurt anything if you join. I also have another one called Islamic History Docs, which is a full episode, full episodes of the Islamic History Podcast put to video. They are very similar to documentaries. I can only suggest you go, you got to go look at it. You got to go look at one of them. I only have a few on that channel, Islamic History Docs. But if you find it, inshallah, subscribe. You know, every little bit helps. It's no money. It doesn't cost you anything. So if you can find it in your heart and your time to join, I'll be truly appreciative. Alhamdulillah and Jazakallah Khairu if you can. In the next episode, inshallah, we will discuss Ibn Fadlan's visit to the Volga Vikings of Russia. But until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.